Joshua 23, starting at verse 1. Now it came to pass a long time after the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their enemies round about that Joshua was old, advanced in age. And Joshua called for all Israel, for their elders, for their heads, for their judges, and for their officers, and said to them, I am old, advanced in age. You have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations because of you. For the Lord your God is he who has fought for you. See, I have divided to you by lot these nations that remain to be an inheritance for your tribes from the Jordan with all the nations that I have cut off as far as the great sea westward. And the Lord your God will expel them from before you and drive them out of your sight. So you shall possess their land as the Lord your God promised you. Therefore, be very courageous to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, lest you turn aside from it to the right hand or to the left. And starting at verse 29 through 31. Now it came to pass after these things that Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. And they buried him within the border of his inheritance at Timnath Sirah, which is in the mountains of Ephraim on the north side of Mount Gash. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had known all the works of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that we would be true to it and that you would have it by the power of your spirit uh, change the way we think, uh, change the way we live, and what we hope for in this world and the one to come. We thank you, Lord, for your kindness to us. We ask you to bless us uh, through the power of your spirit and the ministry of Christ in our hearts. Amen. So this is the uh, last of the three messages. The first two were faithful follower, Joshua as the faithful follower, and then last week Joshua as the courageous leader, and now he is the influential guide. Now... I want to cover two things before we kind of get into the content of this sermon. And the first thing is in verse 1 of 23, what we first read. Now it came to pass a long time after the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their enemies round about that Joshua was old, advanced in age. Now we know later that he died at 110 years old, and I believe this probably occurred right in his final year of life, so I would assume he was 110. And uh, this was not the first time that we're told that Joshua was old, though, because if we go back to 13, in verse 1, we read this in Joshua 13, 1. Now Joshua was old, advanced in years, and the Lord said to him, you are old, advanced in years. God is not very politically correct, is he? It just strikes you when you read that because it really is. We are accustomed to no longer use such a brazen term as, especially when we point it out to other people. Ooh, you're old. You know, children can get away with that, but not adults. I remember once I was standing with Scott Polsky years ago. This was before he had his stomach surgery. And you know Scott. I mean, he's always talking. And so there must have been a, a brief, brief lull in our conversation because he brought up something that had happened to him that week, and he said uh, this week that some little child came up to him and looked up at him and said, you have a big belly. 
And Scott laughed. And, you know, he was commenting to me how kids can just be so candid about this. And he said, it was no surprise to me. It isn't like I rolled over one day in bed and said, whoa, where'd that come from? So Scott was not surprised by what this little kid said. But see, God, we kind of expect better of God, don't we? And we expect God to conform to the, the polite aspects that we come to expect of others. And when we read that, it's somewhat shocking to me. You are old. You are advanced in age. You're going to die soon. That's essentially what he was saying. And so in our culture, that's just not said. We live in denial of old age. We dare not comment on people being old. When I first came to Omaha uh, 24 years ago and I joined Union Pacific, what, how they referred to the other employees, the aged, the, the elderly, the more experienced employees, they called them grayheads. Grayheads. They would just say the grayheads. And it was just matter of fact. I mean, there, there wasn't any blushing about this. There was no little snicker about this. It's just how you regarded the experienced employees. But that changed fairly quickly as political correctness kind of took over in the company and really made that not an acceptable term anymore. But, again, that is an acceptable term to God. Listen to this. Leviticus 19.23. Now, this shows you where God's heart is concerning the elderly. Leviticus 19.23. You shall rise before the gray-headed and honor the presence of an old man. So I want to comment on this briefly. This isn't all about just kind of poking fun at this phrase. But, see, compare the two. Compare what we are afraid to say in telling someone that they're old or that we think they're old. That's in personal communication, right? And so we think that's impolite. We're not going to do that. But yet, what God has just told us in Leviticus, you shall rise before the gray-headed and honor the presence of an old man. You rise before them and honor their presence. See, that's going far, far beyond what we consider polite now, isn't it? Because we have to be aware now of the fact that there are elderly in our midst and that we ought to honor them. It's not just when we talk to them or address them or how we address them, it's that we have to be aware of their presence, aware that they're around. And the reason I bring this up and make so much about this little kind of throwaway phrase in 23.1 is I really encourage all of the parents here, especially those with young children, to take heart at this and really take this to heart because we must teach our children to respect the elderly. And part of that respect is to not run around them because the elderly are deathly afraid of falling because for them, a fall could be the end of their lives. And so especially here in our sanctuary, this ought to be, if any place on earth is a safe place for the elderly, it ought to be in a church sanctuary. And so you little ones that like to run around, please, please, really don't do it in this sanctuary when the elderly are out and about because Yes, you don't intend to, but it could happen that they fall. It could happen that they break a hip. It could happen that they go to the hospital and pass away from complications due to that. So that's my public announcement for the day. Now, there was one other thing I want to cover before we move on to the sermon, and that is this. As I read this, chapter, all of Joshua, and I came to Joshua 23 and 24, you find chapters 23 and 24 very similar to one another, at least in part. And you read in chapter 23, 1, I, what I just read about after a long time Joshua was old, but then the next verse, 
Joshua called for all Israel, for their elders, for their heads. And then at 24, verse 1, then Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel in Shechem and called for the elders of Israel. It gives the appearance that there are two different big gatherings that Joshua has convened in this, in this last year or two of his life. And so as I was reflecting on it, though, I thought, this seems so odd. Why would Joshua have two, these, two of these big events? Joshua 23 gives much less context for it. Joshua 24 gives more. So I began thinking, maybe there's only one. And maybe these are just kind of two facets of the one big event. So I started looking at all the freebie online commentaries. Uh, and if you do that, then you know the ones I mean. It's Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, John Gill, um, you know, so many. But uh, I couldn't find any of them that really even paid attention to this. They just seemed to implicitly regard it as two different events. I had two references to the fact that some think this may be one event, but nobody really sided with me. And I thought, well, maybe my hunch is wrong. But then I went to John Calvin. And John Calvin very clearly says, this is one event. And I thought, well, my hunch is confirmed by none other than John Calvin. So I'm just sticking with that. I, I think this was one event. So it does, however, constitute two main messages that Joshua brought to the people. And we'll talk about that to some extent. And also give kind of additional information why I believe there were one event. So now what I did, and what you don't have the benefit of, I didn't make a handout, let alone give you a five-page handout, but as I've shown you at times in the past, uh, what I did is I kind of outlined 23 and 24. And I started with green, and green refers to past blessings that are being referred to by God. And you can see in Joshua 23 and 24 that the past blessings are referred to quite a bit. And then the blue are future blessings. And so there are these future blessings too, promise for obedience. Not as common, but still a couple here in the beginning. And then the pink is a promise of future judgment should they dis misbehave. So very little pink on the first page, but then, ooh, bunch pink, a little bit more pink. So what I wanted to share with you, though, was my outline of Joshua 23 because it, is, it gives you insight into what's going on. These orange things here, a few of them anyway, there were four references Joshua made in Joshua chapter 23 where he said, I, I have done this, I have done that. And the four are these. He says, I am old, advanced in age. I have divided to you by lot these nations. I have cut off as far as the great sea westward, the nations. And then here in verse 14, I am going the way of all the earth. Those are Joshua's four I statements regarding himself in chapter 23. When you go beyond that, you see very few of those because for the most part, it's God speaking in the whole next section. But... The, these four, Joshua presents three cycles in which he covers these things. Again, green, blue, red. So here we have green and then blue in the first cycle where Joshua is talking to them. So he speaks of past blessings, future blessings, but nothing about judgment. And then he comes into the second cycle. He speaks of past blessings, future blessings, and quite a bit about judgment. And then he comes to the third cycle. He speaks about past blessings and future judgments, should they misbehave. 
What he's doing is I believe Joshua now, this is the final year of his life. He's led these people for a long time. He's been around these people now for 70 plus years as a leader. So he knows these people and he knows what he wants to lecture them about, to teach them about. And what he's teaching them about concerns him. It's, it, it's a burden on his heart. So now uh, he addresses them in these three cycles. And I won't go into any of the details other than to say that he just progresses through explaining to them how God has blessed them, how God has promised to continue to bless them. But if they do not obey, then those future blessings are forfeit. And instead, they get the pink. They get the judgment. Now we go into Joshua 24. And he begins right at the beginning in verse 2. Thus says the Lord God of Israel. So see, all of chapter 23 that Joshua speaks of, that's why it seems like a separate event, but it's his preamble where he's speaking only of himself. Now he's referring to God's blessing, but it's all from his personal perspective. Then you go into Joshua 24 and he immediately introduces God. And for God, he says this, and he goes on at quite a length actually. He says... God says, 13 I am's, and I want to share them with you. So in verse 3, God said, I took your father Abraham from the other side of the river. Now, the other side of the river is the Euphrates River, far, far away. So Abraham was 75 years old when God came to him and told him, you are mine. I'm taking you to this promised land. Abraham, now many people, not many, but some people try to say, oh, God foresaw faith in Abraham. Abraham was not like his father or his brother. That's baloney. Abraham was an idolater. He was an idolater off in Ur of the Chaldees. His father moves them to this other city, but then God calls to Abraham and said, I'm going to take you out of this. So God plucks Abraham from a life in which he was dedicated to idolatry and saves him. He introduces him to himself, to the real God. And now, I don't know if you've ever done a timeline of Genesis and Exodus, but it's just beautiful because you see that when Abraham is born, Noah's children are still alive. I mean, it's amazing to look at the timeline and how much the population has increased on the earth. But yet, within a few hundred years of getting off the boat, They've devolved into idolatry. So this is what he goes on to say. He has 13 IMs. I took your father Abraham from the other side of the river. So it's all due to God. God initiates it. And you remember, he was 75. His wife was older and barren. And yet then, uh, 10 years later, here, take Hagar. And then 13 years later, I'm going to give you a son. And they disbelieve him. But so we know then, for uh, Abraham, to have that heir, Isaac, to pass along to posterity, that was a very, very difficult thing for them. It all came from God. Then the very next thing, to Isaac, I gave Jacob and Esau. Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah. How old was he when the twins were born? He was 60. So for 20 years, he pled with the Lord for an heir. And finally, finally, his prayers are answered. And he's given Jacob and Esau. So this is what God says. To Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. I sent Moses and Aaron, the third one, 
He sent Moses and Aaron down. So a lot of time has passed, obviously. This is really just a summary bringing them to where they are now in the promised land. And that's all it's a summary about. They gloss over an awful lot of detail. I sent Moses and Aaron, number three. Number four, I plagued Egypt. Number five, I brought your fathers out of Egypt. Number six, I brought you into the land of the Amorites. Number seven, I gave them into your hand. Now, these were a powerful people, but he gave them into the hand of the Israelites. I gave them into your hand. I destroyed them from before you because we remember Moses, remember his, his, his arm being raised by her and Aaron. I would not listen to Balaam. I delivered you out of his hand. There's are number nine and 10. I delivered them into your hand. And here he's referring to all the nations after they'd crossed the Jordan. I delivered them into your hand. I sent the hornet before you. And some try to uh, make that metaphorical, but I don't really believe so. I believe that God was using it. He'd said he would. He would drive those people out. Those people were being driven from their land such that the Israelites could move in. And these hornets served that purpose. Uh, who wanted to live around these things? And so they would just move a little bit at a time out of the Israelites' way, and then God would deal with the hornets or taught them how to. So that was number 12. And then the last one, I have given you a land for which you did not labor. So God has recounted in a thumbnail sketch here hundreds of years of this in the works. It's been over 500 years since he plucked Abraham from idolatry and obscurity and now, here we are, millions of people have been brought into this promised land, and God has been clearing it out of these other people who he had had uh, basically a death penalty placed upon. So Joshua reminded the Israelites uh, that what God had done for them, but first he'd reminded them what he'd done, and what did he say? He said, I led the armies, I took, I took those uh, armies, I, kill, I killed those people, and I divided the land for you. That's what Joshua did. He did two things. The other two I am's, he said, is I'm old and I'm dying. So he had only two things that he did for these people other than get old and die. God enumerates 13 things. And so what Joshua is telling us in chapters 23 and 24 is don't set me up as this wonderful guy when what I did is this, and I only did it under the auspices of God. God did all these things for you. Yet it goes to show how material-based we are as humans. We want to see our leader. They were very uncomfortable with God. Even as that Shekinah glory, the fire or the cloud, all that did is make them afraid. Because they didn't feel that they identified with that God. Whereas they identified with Joshua. They admired him. They followed him. So now I said, as I said before, Joshua, though, is very concerned about their faithfulness, about remaining faithful. Let me read to you from uh, why I believe Joshua was concerned and what he hints at. In 23.8, he says this, But you shall hold fast to the Lord your God as you have done to this day. So see, he does commend them for their faithfulness. And here he is at the end of his life. They've been in this land now for probably 25 to 30 years. And he said, hold fast to the Lord your God as you have done to this day. So he's not accusing them at this point of idolatry. But listen to what he says in chapter 24 in verses 14 and 23. In verse 14 he says, now therefore fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity in truth, and put away the gods 
which your fathers served on the other side of the river. Now here he means in Ur the Chaldees, hundreds of years earlier. Fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. So he's saying, put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. He's speaking to people who most likely were not in Egypt. But why does he tell them to put away the gods? And so you think, okay, well, maybe this is just a metaphorical way of speaking. Maybe these gods are not really in their possession. They're not idols in their hands or in their tents. They're in their hearts and in their minds. Okay, so maybe, maybe. But let's go on to verse 23. Now, therefore, he said, put away the foreign gods which are among you. Put away the foreign gods which are among you. Now, I don't think you can get around that and call that metaphorical. I believe these gods were real. These idols were real. Why, why did the Israelites have them? Why did they have these foreign gods? Now, see, he's covered all the gods now. The gods of Ur the Chaldees, the gods of the Egyptians, and now the gods of the Amorites. And he's saying, put away the foreign gods which are among you. So, I believe Joshua has reason to be concerned, but the concern has not yet led to infidelity. But I believe they're entertaining the idea. And Joshua sees this in its nascent form. He sees where this is headed. So he knew the idols existed in their midst, and he encourages them to get rid of them. And we'll get into this in more detail later. But now, uh, first I want to comment on verses... Uh, 14 and 15 in, in, uh, in chapter 24. And this is something I believe we all are familiar with. Let me read the whole passage. It's only two verses, but it's quite lengthy. Now, therefore, fear the Lord. Serve him in sincerity and in truth. And put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. There is a website out there that tells us the most popular verses in the Bible. And the first verse is John 3.16. This verse, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It is the 263rd most popular verse in the Bible according to that website. I have no idea how they get that data. I'd really like to figure that out. But who of us has a plaque in our home that has those words on it? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I know more of you do. You just don't know where it is. It's probably hanging on your wall. You just haven't really looked at it for a few years. But many of us have these verses on our walls. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now... He implies, Joshua implies here, that they must serve God or a God. He doesn't presume that they can become atheists, like in our present day. Many people proclaim to be atheists. They, they have no faith. They have no belief in spirituality. And actually, what's funny, though, is that atheists tend to be young. Because the longer they live, they become agnostics. Because they realize they can't prove atheism. And so the best they can do is hope to say, well, I don't really think there is anything out there. But they have been through a lot of arguments by the time they get older. And so they mature from atheism into agnosticism. 
But now this is Joshua, and in this culture, they all acknowledged God. It's really funny. It, it, we, we really have to move into modern times with all of our advanced education to assume away a God that created everything. Um, because it's really hard to get to that level of education, to assume away there being this supreme spiritual being. Because when you look around, it's just none of it makes sense otherwise. But yet people have convinced themselves of that nowadays. Now this may sound familiar. Elijah said something very, very similar that day to the Israelites uh, hundreds of years in the future. In 1 Kings 18, 21, we read, How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. And if Baal, follow him. So again, there's this assumption that there is a God. And you must pick. Don't just think that you can go through life without any care about who that God is that you're serving or worshiping or not. And that's what he's hinting at. Joshua, what he wants from them in this final year of his life, this is what's beautiful about this. In his final year of his life, what he is trying to get out of these people, these listeners, is fire and passion for their faith. A fire and passion that they felt just a generation earlier when they're taking, moving into this land and taking over. Yet he finds that that has been dying, and he's concerned about it. So now the people show that they're listening. He gets done with what I just said, and as for, you know, choose you this day whom you will serve. The people answered and said, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord our God is he who brought us and our fathers up out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who did these great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the people through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out from before us all the people, including the Amorites who dwelt in the land. See, all that green talking about past blessings, and it's the people themselves that are saying it. So see, Joshua has got them to say what he's just told them. They're telling him back to him. He's provoked that out of them. This is their salvation story. Do you have a salvation story? Are you proud to be a Christian? Do you really know God and his word? Have you had the experience of that? And do you share it? Are you excited about it? Are you passionate about it? That's what Joshua is firing up in these people. And that's what really we must, I think, bring out of you. That's part of what my role is to be up here is to get you to look inside. What is it that God has done in your life that perhaps was a fire at one point, but it has fallen away to embers? You must fan that into flame. Be excited to be a Christian, to be saved. So in verse 19, Joshua said to the people, you cannot serve the Lord. Now listen to this. Right after they parroted his words back to him, he says this to them. Joshua said to the people, you cannot serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions nor your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after he has done you good. So here's Joshua. He's got them to say what he just told them. And they're like, yeah, yeah, rah, rah, our God, our God. You can't serve the Lord, you bunch of losers. What is he doing? Why is he doing this? And you think later, future, Jesus, remember, same name as Joshua, he does the same thing. 
You only follow me because you got the free food. You don't know me. You don't want me. And many of them left, didn't they? They quit following him after that. What did these people say? No, but we will serve the Lord. So Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord for yourselves to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. What they said in response to his accusation that they were unworthy and fall away is what we all must say. No, but we will serve the Lord. Job, in the litany of complaints that is the book of Job, says this. Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. So see, we have to have that same faith. We might not understand what God is taking us through. But we must know that it's for our good, regardless of how bad we or others are thinking it is, because we know God's word. We know his promise that God will not have us have to experience anything that is not for our ultimate good. Now, that can't apply to the unbeliever. That applies to believers. That applies to his children. But what I find here in this given bake, given, given a, Give and take this back and forth. I believe it's a pep rally. And I believe they know they're engaged in a pep rally. So they've got Joshua up there at 110 shouting these things. And they're shouting back, this is reminiscent of an earlier event. Does anybody know when this last occurred? I spoke of it, but very, very briefly last week when I spoke of him as the courageous leader. Joshua goes on to reaffirm the covenant in Shechem. Now, Shechem is here, and a mile north of it is Mount Ebal. A, mount of, a mile south of it is Mount Gerizim. And back after they'd crossed and after they defeated Ai, so you're a few weeks, really, not much more into their time in the promised land, way back in Deuteronomy, Moses had instructed them what to do. They were going to go to those mountains... Because those mountains formed this natural amphitheater. So I believe jo uh, Moses figured out what was going to happen from the spies that he had sent into the land. So they explained all of this terrain. And so now God has sent them into the promised land. He tells them, build an altar on Mount Ebal. And you're going to have six of the tribes of Israel on Mount Ebal facing south. And six of the tribes on Mount Gerizim facing north. And this is what they're going to do. And this is where I want to take you, to Deuteronomy 27. The Levites shall speak with a loud voice and say to all the men of Israel, Cursed is the one who makes a carved or molded image, an abomination to the Lord, the work of the hands of the craftsmen, and sets it up in secret. And all the people shall answer and say, Amen. You've got... Two plus million people in this valley facing each other, a million here, a million here, yelling amen at each other. I mean, how awesome is that? I mean, that's awesome. I mean, I was at Promise Keepers. We had like 50,000 people in the stadium. That was awesome. This is how much bigger than that? 40 times bigger than that. And so you've got these Levites yelling out the law and then all of the people yelling amen at one another. So now, here in Joshua, at the tail end of his life, he's brought them back to that area, back to Shechem, the city that's in the valley between these two mountains, and that's where this meeting is occurring. 
And that's where he's having this pep rally. I want to skip ahead a little bit. Uh, I preached on this a few years ago, and I'm going to read to you from verse 32, uh, Joshua 24, 32. The bones of Joseph, which the children of Israel had brought up out of Egypt, they buried at Shechem in the plot of ground which Jacob had brought, bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for 100 pieces of silver, and which had become an inheritance of the children of Joseph. So years ago, when I taught on this, they had... The bones of Joseph, all this time, they brought them out of Egypt with them, all this time in the wilderness, all this time defeating the armies, and now finally they lay them to rest in the mountains of Ephraim. I believe that's the purpose of this convocation. This is a burial. Now, the reason I had to skip ahead, though, is that we have to bypass uh, verses 29 through 31, which speak of uh, Joshua's death. But I really think these were presented out of order here because it's just kind of added as a capstone. Because also, verses 29 through 31 are repeated in Judges chapter 2. And let me read verses 7 to 10 in, in Judges 2. So the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died when he was 110 years old. We read this very same thing at the end of Joshua, and now it's repeated in, in Judges 2. I think it's because they've kind of come, jumped around in time a little bit through here in ending Joshua and in starting Judges. And what we uh, see then is, and this is part of the reason I think that Joshua 23 and 24 talk of only one main event, the first sermon Joshua presents is from his own perspective, and then the next sermon he presents is talking about it, God. It's where he's speaking for God, and he's sharing with them what God had done for them. But yet, the, the, uh, an event that they do there is bury Joseph's bones, because Timnasira, Joshua's home, is about 20 miles to the southwest. So this is his last hurrah. I mean... He is not wanting to go traveling all over the place. He's an elderly, advanced in age. It's been years since Joshua 13.1, and here more years have passed. And so he's probably near death, and yet this is what he wants to do with the final event of his life. He helps finally put Joseph's bones to rest in the mountain in the promised land. So then he pleads with them to put away their foreign gods. Was Joshua's life a success? Was he a successful person? We've talked about him being a faithful follower, a courageous leader, an influential guide. But yet when you, when you look at the great span of Israelite history and you see how quickly, how quickly the Israelites devolve into idolatry, many people are tempted to believe, no, no, he was no more success than anybody was because they all just went into idolatry anyway. But listen to what the word says. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua. How can we expect more of this man to call him a success? I believe Joshua was very successful at what he did. What he did here in, a, in establishing this final memorial 
commemorating what God had done for the Israelites had lasting effect upon these people. It revived in them this faith, this fire for God and all that he had done for them. And it lasted for decades until all of these men that were elders when he died passed away. So Joshua served as Moses' assistant for decades, and he was very successful at that. He was a successful assistant, a successful follower. He led the Israelites on many military campaigns. The only one he lost was the one where it was a foregone conclusion he would lose, and he only lost 36 men. So that's not a horrific loss. But yet he was a successful military leader and led them successfully for decades. And so here he is in the final year of his life, and I believe he, he was a very, very successful, influential guide. Who of us in our last year of life will have this much effect upon anything? Who of us aren't just going to be curled up in our bed watching old TV shows or something? I just think that Joshua was incredible, an incredible servant of God. And he wasn't just going to fade away. He was going out with a hurrah. He wanted to point everybody at God, and that's what he did. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua. Joshua was a success in life and in death. He was successful as a follower, as a leader, as a guide. May we follow as faithfully as he did. May we lead if we get the opportunity as successfully as he did. And may we be a guide with that passion to revive faith in people's hearts in our final year of life. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the life of Joshua, and we pray that we would see him as uh, the success that he was. And yet, Lord, uh, he himself pointed out how uh, pale were his accomplishments in light of your presence there, in light of your work in their midst. And so, Lord, all that we do, we know, we do with you guiding us, with you empowering us and strengthening us. And so we give you thanks that we are your children. And we pray, Lord, please make us faithful servants, faithful followers, leaders, and guides. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.